Hi, everyone. This is Rohan Sadanti, and welcome to the Wharton Digital Health Podcast. It's a podcast where MBAs can connect with the alumni community about the latest trends, company initiatives, and jobs available in the payer provider, digital health, and investing spaces. Today, we are lucky to have James Chakos, who is the co-founder and CFO of Cricket Health. James is a 2016 grad with experience in banking and tech before he jumped headfirst into healthcare. Uh, for those of you who don't know, Cricket is a hot company. It provides tech-enabled services tackling how kidney care is delivered. They've raised over $24 million from the likes of Oak, First Round, and many others. Uh, they were just awarded as a top company to watch in healthcare from Fierce Healthcare. Welcome, James. Hey, Rohan. Thanks for having me. Awesome. How did I do on that intro? Does that sound about right? Perfect. Good. Well, let's dive right in. Uh, everyone wants to hear from you. Can you give us a brief summary of your career path kind of before and after Wharton and then how you got to cricket? Yeah, I'd be happy to. So... I grew up in Canada, and obviously it's a very different healthcare system up there. I came down here for college, worked in finance and investment banking at JP Morgan, and then joined LinkedIn on the business operations team, which basically did strategy and analytics. I helped grow that team in California, and then moved out to Asia where I worked on Asia expansion. And it was actually out in Asia where I first met Arvind, who is our CEO and co-founder here at Cricket. And I was basically his strategy guy out in Asia. After that, I moved to Philly, went to business school at Warden, and Arvin said he was going to take some time off. I was starting to think about what I wanted to do over the summer, and Arvin wrote on LinkedIn, I'm working on something, stay tuned. And so I got back in touch with him. We met for coffee and started talking about a couple ideas he had within healthcare. I knew that we trusted each other. I knew we liked working together. And so I decided to join for that summer and work with them again. Basically, over those few months, Arvin was working on a few different areas within healthcare. But one of the, an investor actually said, there's something around peritoneal dialysis. You guys should check it out. And so Arvin was on vacation that following week. And I worked with Vince, who's our co-founder. And we basically that then just wrote the case for, kid, for us focusing on kidney disease. I sent around the deck on Friday. I was away that weekend. But then when we got back on Monday, we all sat down and agreed that we should start focusing on kidney disease. Wow. Okay. So uh, you, it was kind of a quick, kind of a quick thing and based on a trusted connection from the past, which I love hearing. We're going to get back to cricket properly to learn about the origin story and, and all about cricket. But now that we know the general um, area that we're tackling, we're going to zoom out and really get to the industry and talk about kidney care in America and why that industry is attractive. Um, so given, you know, especially Warden's relationship with DaVita and all that stuff, um, folks kind of know about the duopoly a bit, but what we want to understand is um, what are some of the consumer pain points with these firms and then why a new company needs to exist. So if you can start to set the stage for us there, that'd be great. Definitely. So in the U S the kidney care market is dominated by two players who you mentioned, David and Fresenius. And one of the things you'll notice when you look at that part of healthcare is that 90% of dialysis patients are on a form of treatment that has been shown in research to be worse for patients and more expensive for the system. <coughs> and that treatment is in-center dialysis. There's basically a ton of research that shows home dialysis is better for patients and that the system would actually incur less costs if there was more home dialysis. And so you see that in a lot of other countries too. Most single payer countries, 
have a rate of home dialysis that is 25 to 35%, whereas the U.S. is just at 10%. In some countries, there's even a home first policy. And in those countries, the rate of home dialysis can be as high as 80%. And so at Cricket, what we're trying to do is bring together the right tech folks and the right healthcare and renal care folks to actually develop a new approach to kidney care that focuses on getting patients the treatment that's right for them. And so we use technology to identify patients who are at risk of kidney disease. We prevent the disease from progressing. We better educate patients about their different options, including transplant. And we help them manage their condition before they actually need dialysis. And so the goal is to you know, avoid dialysis if possible and get folks on the right form of treatment if they do need some kind of renal replacement therapy. Got it. So is the pain point where the pain points we're addressing is that a, they maybe shouldn't be on dialysis at all, and that's that gap exists today. B, when they get on dialysis, uh, they're on a form of treatment that's maybe cumbersome or not in home and not being delivered in the way that would be easy for their life. Are those the two kind of big pain points, and are there others? Yeah, so there's a bunch. Patients don't know all the options available to them. Yeah. A lot of patients don't know that they have kidney disease. and for many patients, in-center dialysis is not the best option for them. Home dialysis is a better option. Preemptive transplant is by far the best option for patients. And for some folks that are older and have multiple comorbidities, palliative care is a, is a better option as well. And so um, we basically work with patients to make sure that they know what all of their options are and help them get onto the form of treatment that's right for them. Got it. Let me ask the dumb question. How does someone not know that they have kidney disease? Yeah, so basically the way the disease progresses is that there's multiple stages. And so there's stage one, two, three A, three B, four, five, and then what's called end stage renal disease. And when you're in stage stages one or two, sometimes you won't actually show symptoms. And so the way that kidney disease is actually identified is through labs and actually taking a measurement of you know, what's eventually transla translated into an EGFR, which is a measure of your kidney function. And okay. unless you get those labs done, a lot of folks just won't know that they have kidney disease or that their kidney function is declining. So if patients are going to the bathroom and they're, they, they're, they, they, they don't have a way of looking at their urine and telling that their kidney is not cleaning out what it needs to, um, there's, no, there's no way that they would catch the fact that they don't have kidney disease. So actually they could have it for, for what, I'm assuming months and years before there's an impact to their life? Right. So kidney, yeah, your kidney function can decline at different rates. And so for some folks, it declines very slowly. For other folks, it will decline rapidly. And so for people whose kidney function is declining more slowly, they wouldn't be able to, they wouldn't be able to tell that that's happening. Oh, wow. I didn't even know that. Okay, great. So there's a clear case. I mean, you've laid it out here, um, tons of consumer pain points and clearly the need for, for business to enter. Um, can we switch over from the sort of consumer pain points more to the unit economics of starting a business? Can you walk us through a little of what the business opportunities are just from the like margin or unexplored area side um, that you think are ripe to exploit? Definitely. So as a general principle, I think an in industry is interesting when price doesn't equal cost. And so you find that to be the case in different parts of the U.S. healthcare system, especially within dialysis. In dialysis, for commercial patients, 
the price of the service can be five, even six times cost, and sometimes even higher than that. And so that's the first dynamic that you, that, that you notice. When you add on top of that, the fact that the cost of providing home dialysis is actually less than in-center dialysis, there's a pretty clear opportunity. And so we really believe that you can provide a better dialysis experience for patients for a lower, lower price when it takes place in the home. Ultimately, payers are typically spending up to $100,000 per patient on dialysis. And we think there's a tremendous opportunity to reduce that cost by delaying progression of the disease and empowering people to choose the right treatment for them, whether that's dialysis, transplant, or other alternatives. Got it. Got it. Okay. So there is a way to explore this. I I can't wait any longer. We got to dive into Cricket story um, and learning properly about the company. Um, So we're going to transition into that now. That's really what I think our listeners want to get into. So tell us by, tell us by, talking about the company first and just give us a sense of um, end-to-end what what the company does. And uh, if you'd like to dive more into the origin story, that's great, but we really want to hear what is it that Cricket does day-to-day. Yeah, totally. So in terms of the company history, as I mentioned, Arvind, Vince, and I started working on Cricket in 2015. That's when we wrote the case to focus on kidney disease. That's when we raised the seed round from First Round Capital. And the seed stage for us was all about proof of concept. And so we were showing that our interventions worked. This past summer, we reached a point at which the outcomes were compelling enough and Oak and Cigna invested in our $24 million Series A. And it's with that capital that we think we have a real shot at changing this part of healthcare. Yeah, and you know what makes this exciting for me personally is that Number one, I think there's a huge opportunity to save people's lives and improve the patient experience. And number two, there's a ton of money that's spent on this part of healthcare. And so I think there's an opportunity to build a real business here and to reach a lot of patients. Absolutely agree. And um, your timing is fantastic. So I, I love hearing that. Congrats on the raise. That's amazing. Um, walk me through maybe what uh, is a typical experience of someone who is in the cricket health ecosystem. So I'm a I'm, I'm a patient who maybe has early stage um, kidney disease and I'm being serviced by Cricket or Cricket has sort of found me. What happens? Yeah, so we're a tech-enabled provider. And so the number of touch points we have with a patient, our interactions with that patient are very dependent on what stage of the disease they're in. And so for patients that are earlier stage CKD who dialysis is not in sight yet, but they know that they have kidney disease and they know they want to manage their condition. We have a different model of interacting with them, which is more light touch. For patients that are on dialysis, the interaction is obviously very, very different. Dialysis is something that you have to do multiple times a week. It is a life-sustaining therapy. And so the touch points we have with a patient that's on dialysis is obviously, uh, there's obviously a lot more interaction there. James, that's fascinating to hear about Cricket. Thanks for giving us the context there. Um, what are some of the current projects uh, and initiatives at the company right now? Yeah, so the Series A for us is really about four things. The first is team and talent. We were a relatively small team when we raised the Series A, and so I've been primarily focused on recruiting for the past few months. Number two is commercial validation. Number three is clinical validation basically deepening the body of evidence that our programs are effective. And number four, obviously developing the product and service. In terms of the product and service itself, 
the three areas that we're focused on are fleshing out our care management programs, patient identification and risk stratification, and the dialysis service itself. You know, we believe that a dialysis offering allows us to have the maximum impact on our patients. And so we have all those different aspects of the product and service. Got it. Okay. Um, well, so we're going to be proving it out and building it out. And it sounds like you're well on your way to do that. I want to focus on you and your role. Um, we rarely, uh, if ever, get to talk to entrepreneurs, especially ones that have raised so much capital from smart people and now have the pressure to grow. Because frankly, with the venture angle comes um, timelines and seats on boards and all that stuff. So could you really let the curtain down for us and kind of give us a sense of what it's like? Maybe we can start with what are some of the biggest challenges in your role, head of finance, you know, HR, ops, things like that. In your role, what are some of the biggest challenges uh, you're tackling today? Good question. So I think the biggest challenge for us in the Series A is growing from 10 to 80 people and doing that while maintaining our culture and the culture that made us effective in the seed. Some people think HR and recruiting isn't the most interesting function, but I think that growing quickly and effectively is meaningfully hard. And so the answer to how we're resolving that is multifaceted. We're codifying our culture, we're incorporating our culture into the recruiting process, and we're trying to hire really good people that are focused on talent. Yeah. To give you an example of you know, where there can be uh, some challenges in this, one is one of our culture values is maintaining our humility. And we're bringing together really smart technologists and really smart healthcare providers, but they come from very different backgrounds. And so what's challenging is making sure you hire people that have great expertise that they bring to the table, but who are also learners and want to learn outside of their own area of expertise. Yeah, let me, if I could just jump in there, how do you, how do you figure that out in an interview? I think like that's so hard to do and getting, you know, figuring out intellectual curiosity of somebody is so tough, even in a 30 minute, one hour interview. How do you try to tease out the fact that someone's humble and they're a learner? Yeah. So one of the things that I look out for in interviews is what are the questions that they ask back? So I've been in interviews where the candidate will just answer your questions, but they don't ask any questions back to you. And I think that's a little bit of a tell because there's obviously, I mean, we're two different people that come from such different backgrounds and there's, you know, hundreds of questions I could think to ask, ask folks that come into our office and are interested enough to learn about cricket. And so I always like to leave a lot of time for them to ask questions just because it's interesting to me, for me to, to hear what they want to learn about and what they, what piques their curiosity. And so yeah. that's one way. Okay, got it. So I'm understanding how people might ask questions back to you, and that would actually um, give you a sense of whether they're there to learn or whether they're there just to answer your questions. I want to get to a separate part of interviewing, which is the clinicians. I'm going to get to that in a second because I'm sure there might be separations there. But staying on people themselves, I don't think you physically could interview all the people it would take to get from 10 to 80. Not, you know, James Chalkos alone can't do all those interviews. You have to trust your team to be able to do that. So now you've got multiple people who are supposedly using some codified rubric to evaluate uh, interview candidates and then bring them on. How do you codify uh, this set of criteria 
to several people, I'm assuming, such that you all do all these interviews and roll up into a great team? Like, how do you ensure that consistency? Yeah, that's a great question. So what it comes down to is just setting the right process. So one of the things I learned at LinkedIn is that if you set up a good process, then a lot of that becomes easy. Replicating success becomes a lot easier if you have a good process that you're following. And so we just hired a talent acquisition lead who's doing a really good job just making sure that everything from us discussing what roles we want to open up to how we actually recruit for those roles, how we interview, how we gather feedback, how we make a decision about hiring, how we deliver the offer, and then how we onboard candidates. That whole process is meaningfully complicated, and we want to make sure that we're thoughtful about each of those steps. Some of those pieces people don't really think about delivering an offer. Some people don't think is, is they think, oh, well, that's, that's just a, you know, that's an easy conversation. You just tell them what the numbers are, which sure. is not the case. You know, we, even at Warden, they, some, of the, some of the classes on negotiations talk about how each of those pieces is really important and how you ensure that there's a good candidate experience will lead to happier employees. It will lead to people joining your team that are excited, that are a good culture fit. And so we're really trying to be thoughtful about each of those pieces in the hiring process and making sure that we publish what are best practices within Cricket and we hold people accountable to following those. Got it. Um, and the, I mean, the race for talent in San Francisco is absolutely cutthroat. So yep. there's a time pressure and a, and a market pressure to find these people. Um, are you finding that you are having to go to them or are people coming to you? Can I, I mean, Cricket's a hot company, so I can understand why the latter might happen, but it doesn't mean that the people who knock on your front door end up being the employees. How is the sourcing working out? San Francisco is definitely a tough market. We've had a lot of success with referrals. And so, you know, we're lucky to have hired really good people as the core initial team. And so what we always try to do when we're kicking off a search is make sure we farm our internal network and make sure that we know if there's anybody in our immediate network or extended network that might be interested in the, in the role. A lot of the folks that we've hired have been through referrals. So somebody on my team, Vikram, he was referred through uh, a number of different channels. And we try to take those referrals seriously because the folks that you know and who know your business are obviously great, great resources. Got it. Well, sounds like it's, uh, it's not just what you know, but who you know, which is good to hear. Um, I want to talk about clinicians. Um, and I would, I'd imagine you've got to have some challenges there. Um, interviewing, different interviewing an engineer versus interviewing a clinician um, and the criteria you're looking for and how they're comfortable with your products and things like that. So can you give us some insight there into what it's like to bring on a doctor versus uh, maybe an engineer or someone else? Yes. So we're obviously hiring clinicians, engineers, ops, all different functions. And folks that have been in a clinical setting may not have had as much exposure to te te technology. And you and I know that feeling of going into a hospital and feeling like the technology is 20 years behind what you're used to outside of the hospital setting. And so what we try to do is make sure that we are attracting folks that even if they don't have as much exposure to technology from their previous 
previous work experience, they are at least interested in learning more and want to understand how an app gets built. They want to understand how the tools that they use actually get coded. And they have an interest in learning more about those other parts of the company. It works the other way too. With engineers, we want to make sure that they are interested in learning more about a clinical setting and what it's like to have a in-person experience in a clinic. And so we try to foster that interpollination between the different functions to make sure that people have an appreciation for the complexity of what we're doing. Uh, for those of you uh, who are going to check out Cricket later, they have a culture code. Um, there are seven pillars to it. I don't need to read them off to you, but they're very simple and um, pretty insightful, I think, probably into the, into the company. Um, James, how does the culture code come up in the day-to-day? So I just to, just to reference kind of another code I've heard about is Amazon also has um, like a culture code and they have these, all these sort of 125 or sort of pillars that they talk about. And they are brought into the business day-to-day um, in their decision-making and they'll reference them in their company decision-making. How do you make sure that the culture code isn't just something that's on the internet and then actually is part of the daily life of the employees of the company? The first thing that we did, which helps actually with the implementation of the culture code is we involved everybody at the company in actually setting what the culture values were. So we worked with an outside consultant who helped us get together, take us out of our day-to-day and talk about what's important to us as individuals and what's important to us in our work life. And that facilitator was instrumental in us just being able to simplify what we cared about and also just accommodate everybody's different perspectives. And so the fact that everybody was bought in from early on is, I think, key to to the actual implementation of it. In terms of the day-to-day and week-to-week, there's informal and then there's more formal ways that we try to reinforce our culture. The informal ways are in meetings. Everybody has license to bring up culture values and mention how it might be applicable to the the topic that we're discussing. And that's, that's great because it keeps everybody accountable. Anybody at the company can bring up our culture values and can bring them into the discussion. And so that's something that I actually learned at LinkedIn. Culture, the culture code at LinkedIn was set by Arvind in the early days. And it was something that people talked about on a week, on a day-to-day, week-to-week basis. And it was something that we used to actually make decisions. And so we've sort of taken that and made it, made it a little bit of, uh, made it Cricket's own. The more formal ways are we do goal setting. We do, uh, we have an OKR management process. And yep. as part of that, we make sure that each quarter we have certain objectives that are related to implementing our culture values. Yeah. I, mean, it's, I think it's amazing how much time you're spending on making sure cricket is a fantastic place to work, which, uh, which I think doesn't get enough attention in terms of like an entrepreneurial's uh, like right. An entrepreneur's day. right. And and now's the time to do that because I can't remember who it was, but they talked about how when you're scaling an organization, you want to hire people that have the same passion for what you're doing, not any less. Because every time an employee joins, if there's some dilution in that passion or there's some dilution in that um, care that they come to work with, 
then that will have effects as the organization as the organization grows. So you're growing fast and you're kind of the perfect guy to do this. I mean, you have a finance background. You worked at LinkedIn, for God's sake. And so if you know about ne- networks, informal and formal, and you help them scale across, you know, um, outside of the U.S. So it's, it's kind of interesting that you're the perfect guy to do this. But what keeps coming back to my mind is you can't do everything alone. And there's only one of you. So, uh, you know, you, you've brought on other people to help you, but you can't be in every interview. You can't be there for every training session. Um, and it's, uh, it's impressive to hear that you've been able to kind of replicate yourself in a way uh, in order to trust the process so that you're bringing in all these correct people. Um, I, if I'm you, my biggest fear is every night that maybe someone else isn't doing the, the codified code or isn't doing what we set out. Um, I'm sure you have some way of tracking that. Since we're talking about hiring so much, let's switch to officially talking about hiring MBAs. Um, now that everyone knows about cricket, they're going to want to work there. So let's uh, let's give some insight into that. Um, what roles are you hiring MBAs for? Do you even have MBAs today other than yourself? Uh, maybe what skill sets are you targeting? Yeah, so we're hiring across the board. I don't think we have any roles where we specifically require somebody to have an MBA, but in my opinion, the value of an MBA is that you learn what our best practices on hiring and unconscious bias. You learn what research suggests are the best ways to scale an organization. Classes, you know, at Warden where uh, you learn about negotiations and influence, all of those are super relevant. And for me personally, I've found myself using a lot of that in my job day to day. So when we see somebody with an MBA, it's a good sign. It's a little bit in vogue right now in the Valley to discourage folks from getting an MBA or getting more schooling. And, you know, a lot of people talk about how it's a better way to spend your time to actually just be working. But I don't agree with that. I think you can learn a lot in an MBA. And I think it's an opportunity to focus on the things that you want to learn and to broaden your perspective. And so I think it pays dividends in your career. More specifically, the roles that we're hiring for right now are across the board. So yeah, we're hiring in data, we're hiring biz dev, clinical operations, customer success, HR, product, finance. And so folks that have an MBA should apply to any of those roles. The exception obviously being clinical roles where you need more than an MBA. Since it seems like hiring is the priority, who should they reach out to? Should, should they be flooding your inbox or should it be someone else? Yeah. So if folks are interested in any roles, please email our talent acquisition lead. Her name is Atusa. And her email is atusa at crickethealth.com. That's A-T-O-U-S-A at crickethealth.com. Love it. You're the first uh, podcast guest to actually give out an email address for hiring. So we really appreciate that. James, that's fascinating. You're clearly bringing on a ton of people. It's great to hear MBAs are also top of mind. You even have a Wharton HCM person there right now. So love to hear that. Since folks are now going to be emailing atusa left and right, they're going to need to know a little more about kind of where the kind of fascinating parts are of the industry. So where are things headed? So um, let's educate folks a little on that. So where are things headed for your company or maybe the industry and, and what should we be looking for? Yeah, so there are a few larger trends that Cricket is a part of. And so the first one is there's obviously a widespread acknowledgement that there's going to be a shift to home and in a lot of different parts of healthcare, you see that that is what's best for patients and best for the system. And so that is one big change. The second is obviously the shift to value. That's 
not going to happen overnight, but everybody knows that over the next few years, that's going to happen. And so at Cricket, we're trying to make sure that we're at the forefront of innovating in that respect. And the last piece I'll mention is that in kidney care, as it's been imagined previously, it's mainly about dialysis care. And we feel strongly as a company that that's going to change. And we're going to need to position ourselves to better provide transplant care, palliative care, options education, condition management, and actually prevention of the disease itself. And that's something that you see in other parts of healthcare as well, that folks are actually focusing on preventing diseases from progressing instead of just treating it after the fact. I love to hear that you're tackling it. Um, since we're on the topic, from the, I'm from D.C., so I always think about the legislative side of things. The Patient Act um, is on the horizon and may get passed you know, in the, in the near term. Who knows? Do you think the Patient Act goes far enough? And can you give us um, what your kind of viewpoint is on it? The Patient Act is definitely a step in the right direction. For the folks that don't know, the Patient Act is basically automatic attribution of patients to a MA-type capitated model. Basically ensures that dialysis providers and physicians have responsibility for the total cost of care. And it's definitely a step in the right direction. The one thing that we would encourage is that it doesn't go far enough. Rather than focusing on patients that are on dialysis after their kidneys fail, we think that we should be encouraging providers to actually intervene to slow the progression and keep patients healthier. And so that's why, you know, we would encourage Medicare to incentivize models like ours, where you actually invest in patient care before a patient's kidneys fail. Got it. Okay. That's great to know about what the kind of macro winds are shifting um, in the kidney care market. Also what your thought is on the patient act. I'd love to hear that. Um, as we kind of get towards the end here, we want to give space for you to give any last thoughts. Um, so that could be anything on the industry or company or just your personal career trajectory. We'd love to just kind of hear from you and give you that space. Yeah, I think it's a really interesting time in healthcare. We started this journey in 2015 and, you know, at the time we were talking about how home dialysis should be the majority instead of the minority. And a lot of folks would say, oh yeah, we tried that. It didn't work. But with technology changing so quickly now, there's an opportunity to make a better experience for patients when they go home. And so previously, if you're if you doing home dialysis, you would go see the clinic once a month, but for the other 29 days, you would be alone. Now with technology, you can actually get care for those other 29 days. And you see this sort of change happening in other parts of healthcare as well, which is why I think it's a really interesting time to be focused here. The time when the patient is not in the doctor's office is actually when most of the health care occurs. The sick care only occurs when they're sitting in front of a doctor. Um, that's sort of my own thesis on it. And it seems like you right. guys are focusing on touching the whole patient, which is fantastic. James, thank you for taking the time today. Cricket uh, is an absolute company on fire. And we're so excited to see uh, where you guys go and how you grow this thing and, and, and tackle, uh, tackle the issue. Thank you so much, James. Thank you for having me, Rohan. I appreciate it.